Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance Podcast. Thank you for joining us to worship and learn more about God as we all pursue Him together as a community. For more podcasts and services about past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendecatur.org. Or come connect with us in person on Sunday mornings in downtown Decatur. Now, enjoy the message. morning. My name is Ron. I serve on the greeting team, and this is your scripture for this morning. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command him to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank and into the water and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man for whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart, from them, so they, seized, they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. He went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus has done for him. It's the word of the Lord. I suspect that was for Ron, not for me. <laughs> you guys are great. Man, I, I have a whole lot of stuff to say. I got a whole lot, and I'm convinced that God is going to do something really unique. There's, um, it's come up a couple times already this morning. I just, I'm trying to key into some of the things that we might say thematically the Lord is sort of placing before us. First is that there's a key to remembering the things that God had, has done for us. Now, I mentioned that earlier, that he gives two um, sacraments to us that we remember in the church. It's communion, remembering the work that he's done. Um, so I said that earlier, and then we did a couple songs speaking about some of the things that God has done in our past. And then, and then Samantha, just kind of like Troy Aikman calling an audible all of a sudden, takes the worship in a different direction than we had previously planned, and she wants to draw our attention to the things that God has done in the past. So, And then there's part of my message today, which if I could just give you the end now, God wants to talk to you about your past, <laughs> He just does. And um, it's going to take me a while to get there. And I'm asking for your patience. I'm just asking for your patience. Just, just let the word of the Lord just work on you. And then when we get to that place at the end, I'm believing God's going to do something. So anybody believing with me? Yes. Amen. <laughs> Am I the only one? It's okay. It's, I'll be the weird one. 
There are so many metaphors used in the Bible to describe the effect that Jesus has um, when he encounters the world around him. Sometimes Jesus is called light. It's a light that shines in the darkness. Or he's the encouraging voice discerned out of the din of the day's noise. Jesus himself calls himself water and then says, once ingested, the person who drinks that water will never thirst again. The biblical authors repeatedly portray, portray Jesus as an affect of change around him. And yet, you and I oftentimes, because we know the end of the story, I mean, we're celebrating baptisms, we're talking about communion, his uh, overcoming death, um, and uh, sacrificing his life on the cross, and we know how the story ends, right? So sometimes when we know that, it steals away some of the magnitude and some of the excitement that the contemporaries of Jesus' day the people living when he was living, the people experiencing the things like first person, the things that they would have experienced, we lose some of that. There was an excitement that they had. To those people living in first century Palestine, Jesus was a force. Not in some brutish or rude way, but in a way that drew people to listen, in a way that drew people to feel and to ponder and to encounter God in a personal way. Cultural establishments like religion and politics, they repeatedly collided into Jesus and they were the ones left bruised and battered while Jesus walked away unscathed. That is until the moment Jesus chooses to lay down his life. He allowed those institutions to strike, them, strike him with their best shot and that was crucifixion. Again, we know the ending of the story. After his death on the cross, Jesus' body did not decay away in a tomb. No, we join with history and decry Christus Victor, which just in Latin means Christ the victor. Woo! Somebody shout, yay! yay. Jesus Christ overcame death in the grave, and theologians call this the atoning work of his death and his resurrection, where Jesus overcame the evil powers of this world and through which he rescues his people and establishes a relationship with God and the world, his creation, through Jesus. And that ending should not have been a surprise to us, the fact that he walked out of the tomb. It shouldn't have been a surprise. If we'd been paying attention to the clues that the writers of the Bible had been giving us, we wouldn't be shocked when he rolled back the stone and walked out. Of course, we should say with our hands on our foreheads, we should say, of course Jesus has the power to beat back evil. We've seen it on display throughout the entirety of the scriptures. All of the New Testament biographies of Jesus' life have stories of Jesus overcoming dark forces. And in every one of them, he wins. Of course, he's going to beat death too. Anyone tracking with me so far? Luke chapter 8, 26 through 39, who Ron so eloquently read. Well done, Ron. Give Ron a hand. Thank you for that. This, this passage is one of those accounts where Jesus is confronted by evil in the form of demons that try to manipulate their way with Jesus, and of course, Jesus would have nothing of it. In his commentary on Luke's gospel, Dr. Trent Butler reminds us this, that the New Testament just assumes that demonic powers are active in the world. It does not give, the New Testament does not give us like the origin of demons, doesn't tell us where they come from. We have to kind of figure that out. We don't really know, I'll be honest with you. The Bible doesn't say demons come from this. We believe they're fallen angels, but it doesn't say they're fallen angels, so we have some work to do. I'm just saying. But Jesus would encounter these dark forces, and they would try to overcome him, and Jesus would just push them back. There are eight major episodes in the New Testament where Jesus 
encounters demonic powers or unclean spirits. Some of the examples are a few that you might know. Satan was tempted in the desert. Satan rather tempted Jesus in the desert, if you know that story. Jesus runs across a demon-possessed man who's been made mute because of the demon, and Jesus casts out the demon. The man immediately began to speak. Jesus healed a demon-possessed daughter of a Canaanite woman, a non-Jewish person. And elsewhere we read in the New Testament, there's a woman named Mary Magdalene who became a disciple of Jesus, had seven demons inside of her. Jesus exercised all of them out. There's even a story in the New Testament, two of the Gospels that say this, that one of Jesus' disciples, Judas, boo, everybody knows Judas, that Satan himself entered into Judas and controlled him. Then the disciples, along with an anonymous exorcist who gets no name in the Bible, cast out demons wherever they went. The facts reveal, reveal this, that the early church faced demon possession they faced demon-possessed people, and nothing, hear me, nothing in Scripture would, would say that we wouldn't experience the same thing in our world. There's nothing in Scripture that say that the things that happened then stopped and are, are still happening now. The dark forces still try to win. The demons still try to take control. They still try to do things. Demons make people suffer sickness, experience seizures, act out in socially unacceptable ways. They belong to the world of spirits. Demons have exceptional spiritual knowledge. Demons can even give humans the power to foretell the future. Tarot card much? They can deceive us, they can blind a person's mind, and they can lead people away from the truth. They tempt people into sinful pleasures. This is the MO of demons. And Jesus repeatedly exercised control over all of them, like we see in this scene here in Luke's gospel, casting them out, but with a simple word, get. Jesus does not resort to elaborate rituals, incantations, or prolonged exchanges with the demons. He simply says, leave, and they leave. It shows his great power, but doesn't make for a very compelling movie. <laughs> and in so doing, Jesus can be said to heal, to cure and to save and to release a person. Release people. But he's not the only one who has power over demons. Jesus gave this power to some of his disciples, 12 of them in fact. Such miraculous power was not automatic and it was not available to those who did not pray. And that is a sermon for another time. But just know this, Jesus with the authority has given said authority to others, his followers. So anyways, today we focus on Luke's teaching because we want to learn that, that Satan or the devil is not going to win the final battle within the church, amen? He's not going to win it within individual Christians' lives, amen? And why is that? It's because Jesus has won the decisive battle on the cross and through the resurrection. In the creative discipline of storytelling, we refer to this scene in Luke 8 as foreshadowing. The author hints at the climax of the story where the hero overcomes the anti-hero and does so in such a way that it resembles an earlier resolution of conflict. This is just a shadow of what Jesus is going to do when he rolls the stone away. He's simply going to just walk out <laughs> and he just casts the demons aside. For those of you that are musicians, any musicians in the room? Come on, seriously, artists, any artists in the room? All right, why aren't you in the band? I'm just saying. <laughs> Or is it all the band is raising their hand right now? <laughs> Nick, you're in the band. Put your hand down. All right, Mary, was that you? Put your hand down. You're in the band already. We need more people in the band. <laughs> I'm just saying. Oh, thank you. So musicians, 
in a song, there's sometimes a, a melody line that is hinted to earlier in the song. Maybe a tritone, a little thing, and then it, you don't really understand the, the meaning of it in the song until the chorus hits, or the, or the, the bridge, the second bridge, and that plays that melody line again and again. All of a sudden, you realize that's the hook of the song. Listen, Luke 8 is the melody line. It's becoming the hook of the song of our lives. Jesus overcomes. Amen. When Jesus encounters evil, these scenes are just allusions to what Jesus is ultimately going to do. He's going to defeat the devil. He's going to defeat the demons forever. He's going to destroy sin and death. But until he does, we watch him display his power over these evil forces. So let's go through this passage together. Verse 26, read this with me. It says that they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, or the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee, and Jesus stepped out on land. There he met a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, this man had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house, but he had lived among the tombs. So just backstory, the disciples and Jesus had just crossed the Sea of Galilee. This is the, the, the story of Jesus um, calming the storm, if you know. During their vo voyage, a storm rose up against the boat and it almost capsized their boat. And if you remember, while the other disciples are losing their minds about it, overcome by fear that their boat is going to sink and they're going to drown, Jesus was sleeping peacefully at the front of the boat. They wake Jesus up and they shouted their concerns at him. And Jesus simply speaks to the wind and he speaks to the waves and they are calmed. And everyone in the boat, this is what Luke records for us, says this in Luke 8, 25. It says, who is this that even he who commands the wind and the waves and it obeys him? There's a power that Jesus has that supersedes anything they've ever seen before. This event transpired right before the boat set shore, and Jesus steps out into this area of the tombs, and a man rushes to meet him. The disciples know Jesus as a teacher or a rabbi or a prophet, and they certainly know him as a miracle worker, but they do, they do not know that he is the one who created the world. They do not know that he is the one who holds it all together, <laughs> They do not know that he is the supreme power that he is. And he's humbled himself by taking on flesh, becoming a man. But Jesus, hear me, he is God. In verse 27, we're going to see how this plays out. In verse 27, it says, leaving everything else behind. Now Luke zooms his lens in on two people only. Everyone else in the background just disappears. Now it's just Jesus and this man from the city who has demons. This man who lives among the tombs now. Another reference to uncleanness as dead things were to be avoided by all Jewish people. We are to assume that this person originally lived with his family up in the city. And that is until he became possessed by demons which you see here is plural. Like Mary Magdalene before him, this man is troubled by more than just one unclean spirit, but there are many unclean spirits, unclean spirits inside of him. And another detail that Luke records for us, it shows the depravity of the situation is given that the, the man is shown naked. These seem like insignificant details, but these mean something to the Jewish person. Shame is connected to nakedness. Shame. <laughs> Game of Thrones, anyone? <laughs> Nobody wants to admit that in church. <laughs> Liars, all of you. Shame! And she rings the bell. Anyone? All right, whatever. I don't recommend it. I'm just saying it's a thing that happened in our world. Don't act like it didn't happen. 
But nakedness was shameful for Jewish people. Luke is setting up the stage to tell us that the disciples and Jesus aren't in Kansas anymore. They've crossed the sea. They are now in Gentile territory. These aren't God-fearers, followers of God. They're idol worshipers, heathens. They're among the unclean Gentiles who raise swine for a living. And surely the disciples must be saying, what is Jesus going to come over here for? Why did we, at his command, get in a boat to cross the sea, to almost drown, to get out, to run into one guy with a demon inside of him? Why are we here, Jesus? Verse 28. When the man saw Jesus, he cries out and falls down before him and says with a loud voice, what do you want to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? We can talk about that, but we won't. I beg you, the demon says, do not torment me, for he had commanded, Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to already come out of the man. It says many a time that this demon or demons had seized the man And so people had kept him under guard. They put chains and shackles around his wrists and feet, but he would oftentimes break the bonds and be driven out by the demon into the desert. Verse 28 says, when we see the man that he cries out and he falls down prostrate before the Lord and he queries why the son of God, Jesus, would bother him. First, we're left guessing whether it was the man himself crying out or the demons inside of him. Luke doesn't say, it just says he cried out. Our assumption is that it was the demons because they're the only ones who have intimate knowledge of spiritual things and Jesus was there in the beginning when they were created. So of course they would know Jesus. So the demons recognize Jesus, the son of the most high God and cry out to him and says, what do you want to do with us? And then secondly, we notice that Luke tells us that these demons, they find the right position before the uncreated one. Jesus is power and he is might. They are weak, they are low and so they fall down before Jesus. And they submit to him, the one who created them. Jesus rebukes them. Verse 29, he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of this poor man, this individual. And Luke includes here some backstory. here, showing us the deplorable state with which this man had been found. He was so uncontrollable and violent that people from the city repeatedly would come down to the tombs and chain him so that he wouldn't bother anyone else or possibly hurt himself some more. We don't know if it's for his protection or theirs. The Bible doesn't say. But we know that through the power of the demons inside of him, he had supernatural strength and he would break loose and oftentimes be driven out into the desert. Another key to this point, the desert is a place of isolation and vulnerability. It's more than just a biome of wilderness. Luke is saying this man is troubled. This man is driven to places that... that that remove him from family and friends. This place is, this man is overcome by forces that he can't control. We don't even know how the demons got inside of him. We don't even have the pleasure to blame him. Because doesn't that make it so much easier when the troubles that we find people in, if they're just fools, we go, that's what they get. Don't they deserve that? Look how stupid they are. Well, they should have known if they went to that party, that thing was going to happen. You should know if you take the call at 2.30 in the morning, what's going to happen next. Anyone? So we just want to blame those individuals. We have no indication that this condition, this poor, unfortunate man finds himself in, 
was in any way his fault. So if we were wondering what motivated Jesus to cross the sea during the storm, it has now become apparent to us. Jesus, the great shepherd, has left behind Capernaum and 99 perfectly fine sheep to come and save this one who was lost and this one who was desperate. Verse 30 says, Jesus asked the demon its name. And the demon responds, Legion, for many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command him to, to depart into the abyss. Verse, verse 30 it says that Jesus wastes no, no time responding to the man that rushes down to him. Jesus, the demons question, What do you want to do with us? And Jesus just simply asks for their names. Like, I'm not talking, you just respond to my question. What's your name? They respond, Legion. Legion's a military term used by Rome to probably equate to five or 6,000 soldiers. So it's quite possible this, this person had a ton of demons, more than six or seven, a lot of demons inside of him. And suddenly, the seven demons that Jesus had exercised out of Mary Magdalene seem insignificant to this current situation. What sort of cosmic battle are we about to witness in front of Jesus? That's the question that we, the reader, are left to ask. Verse 31, we see the curtain pulled back to expose the knowledge that these demons have about Jesus and their future. They know who Jesus is, and they know that one day all the demons and the devil are going to be thrown into a place called the abyss, say amen, woohoo, where they are no longer going to be able to wreak havoc upon God's people or his creation any longer. But these demons do not want this to happen yet, so they plead with Jesus, don't throw us into the abyss. No longer do we see these demons as strong and overpowering spirits using or causing calamity for this lowly and troubled man. No, 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 now they're more like a wounded animal caught in a snare, which ironically, they set for themselves. <laughs> and they are now staring down the barrel of Jesus' shotgun. Don't shoot me, Jesus, they ask. Don't throw us into the abyss. Is Jesus going to pull the trigger? Verse 32, it says that the, the demons begged Jesus to let them enter the herd of pigs. Mark's gospel, another biography of Jesus, tells us there were 2,000 pigs, pigs, and every one of them were overtaken by these demons when they left the man and entered into them. Verse 40, 33 sorry, says this, that the herd then rushed down the steep bank and into the lake or the sea, and they all drowned. Now, the details are vague as to why the pigs decided to drown themselves. Did the demons cause the pigs to drown themselves? I don't, we don't know. Is it possible that Jesus caused the pigs' demise, that he forced the pigs down into the lake to drown? To be honest with you, it's hard for me to believe that Jesus did so. No Lord of mine would waste that, all that bacon. Joke's just telling you. <laughs> uh, I, I wrote it. I have to read it. <laughs> but it's in verse 34 that, that Luke pulls the, the lens back a little bit, and all of a sudden we're reminded Oh, there are more people here. So we've been focusing on Jesus and the man, and all of a sudden, verse 34, it says that the other people were watching this whole scene take place. And up to this part of the story, it's just Jesus and the man. Herdsmen, Luke tells us, saw what had happened, and they fled, and they go to, the, to the, tell the story to the people in the city and out in the country. And in verse 35, it says that people came out of the city to see this thing. Like, this is before Netflix. There ain't nothing else to do on a Thursday night. Let's just go, what is happening with these pigs? For reals? And they go. So before the days of social media and smartphones, this story still was able to sweep across the land. Verse 35, they go, the people go down to see what had taken place. 
And watch what Luke says next. Certainly, when they walked down to where Jesus was, they saw 2,000 bloated pig corpses bobbing up and down in the lake. For sure they saw that. But Luke tells us what they paid attention to. Because when they came down to Jesus, and this is what they see, they found the man from whom the demons had gone now sitting at the feet of Jesus, and he was now clothed and in his right mind. Slowly, this purpose, the purpose, rather, of the story is becoming clear to us. The man was being made whole by Jesus. This is the point of this story. Where did the clothes that the man is wearing come from? We don't even know, and it doesn't matter. But certainly, Jesus provided them. I don't know if he orders Peter and John to get him some stuff, or if Jesus himself gave him a room. We don't know. But Jesus got them for the man and clothed him, just like God did for Adam and Eve when they were found in shame in the garden. You'll recall that Adam and Eve were banished from God's presence, and they were forced to leave the garden when they sinned. But in this story, the people then asked Jesus to leave. They want God to run away from them. And fear causes them to ask Jesus to leave. Fear actually causes us to make some of the worst decisions imaginable. Moving quickly through the rest of this, it says that the man, verse 30, let me see, 38, 38 and 39. Now the man is breathing what I would call clean air, no longer filled with the stench of hell and these demons. His mind is right and soon his body will begin to recover as well. The wounds around his wrists and his ankles will scab over and new flesh will begin to grow underneath. And once he's bathed, the former demoniac will be able to disappear amongst the crowd of people. Nobody will know that's the wild man. That's the guy that used to cause so much trouble. He will just blend in like everyone else. In verse 38, it says that the, the man who's now filled with endless possibilities, no longer being driven by demons to do things he doesn't want to do, he has an opportunity to do whatever he wants, and he, what he wants to do, verse 38 says, is he begs Jesus to go with him. And this is the compelling part of the story, but then Jesus says no. He says no, and he sends the man away. Why wouldn't Jesus let this man join with him? We don't really know for sure. The Bible doesn't say specifically, but we get to use our mental faculties and try to come up with an answer. Verse 39 tells us what Jesus wants him to do. Instead of coming with him, he says this, I'd rather you return home and declare how much God has done for you. Amen. Amen. And so the man does this. Rather than joining Jesus and going on his mission to bring the message of salvation to the Jewish people, the man goes home into Gentile territory. And most people point to this being the beginning of evangelism of the Gentiles, and that's probably true. Of course it is, but I don't think that's the primary reason that we learn this in the story. I think there's another reason why Jesus sent him home. And I asked you earlier for patience, and I thank you for your patience. This is where the message starts. This is where the Lord wants to do something with our remembering and with our past. This is where Jesus wants to show um, uh, up, show up or show off his power and his might, not just in the pages of scripture, but now he wants to show you what he can do in your life. The man who had been delivered was a real person, okay? We believe the Bible is true. We don't know whether he was married or not, but he surely had a family. 
He had a mother and a father, probably even siblings. And he certainly would have had friends, right, before all of the trouble began. Before the voices of torment came and changed his personality, before his personality changed, before his home life situation changed, and those people closest to him began to push him away when the voices came, the townspeople who used to offer a kind wave and hello now cross the street when they see him coming their way. Slowly the man became isolated unto himself, and then, and then one day he was ultimately forced to leave the city. And the words, if you can imagine with me, get out still echoing in his mind as he hears the townspeople shout at him, he leaves his once normal life that was his home, and now the tombs where only dead bodies lay, they will be his abode. Where dead things decay and rot, this is where this man is forced to live. But this man was still alive, but he just wasn't living anymore. And so the, when Jesus asked the man to ret return to the city, just think about that for a moment. That he's possibly going to return to the very people who hurt him and name called him and abused him. And when he was of no utility to them, to them any longer, they discarded him like refuse. And Jesus says, hey, bro, rather than join me and my friends, I'd rather you go home and talk to those people. I want you to sit with them and tell them how God helped you. Tell them how God changed your life. And then listen to them and answer their questions and try, because I know it's going to be hard, but it'll be worth it. Telling other people the stories of our encounters with Jesus is called giving our testimony. How many people have heard that? language. It's church language. Give your testimony. Give your testimony. Give your testimony. And these testimonies are just stories of transformation. And they're impactful to, the other, to other people around us. And when you include the details of your life before you became a Christian and the details after, like the people who knew you best are oftentimes the ones who are most shocked. Again, I've said this many times here at Renaissance. One of my favorite things to experience is when I run into my old high school friends or college friends and they go, you're a pastor of a church now? Like I giggle on the inside. <laughs> I was ridiculous as a young man. The wake of my debauchery shames me if it weren't for Jesus. And this man gets to go back and tell the story of his transformed life. So, this is my argument here. To understand the story fully, we must learn this truth. To follow Jesus means that we have to testify to what he's done for you. You just have to tell people what he's done. The journey of discipleship with Jesus begins with the simple retelling of your story. Tell them who you were before you met Jesus. Tell them how your life has changed. As you share about this transformation and your experience time and time again, and, and listen to this, and may the joy of your conversion overwhelm you once again. May you again say, praise the Lord, hallelujah to God. Thank you, God, for saving me. Because as you replay it in your mind, as you go back to the memorial that, that Sam was talking about earlier, and remember the things God has done, it will well up inside of you a, a, a exuberance and a joyful glee unto God who's, who's done something for you, but you have somehow forgot it. I don't know how. How do, how do we forget the great things that God has done for us? We become busy. We get tied up with a million other things going on. And yet God is calling us, continually calling us to go back to that story of how he changed us and tell someone else and watch their lives maybe slowly begins to be transformed. 
Notice that one of the first things Jesus asks this man to do is not go to seminary. Woohoo! Doesn't ask him to learn Greek or Hebrew, <laughs> read old Bible manuscripts or nothing. Doesn't want him to start a 40-day fast, say amen. Doesn't ask him to sell everything and give to the poor. None of that. Those things are important. We should study the Bible. We should understand how to read the Bible. We should be care, or care, uh, care for those who are less fortunate than ourselves. What Jesus is asking him to do and us to do is just to go back and to tell our story. So at the start, you need to understand what God has done for you. Tell it in your own words, especially um, the, the benefits that you have from following Jesus. Skipping over this next part, I want to get to this. I want you to know that, that God expects us as his children to grow, to grow emotionally, to grow physically and intellectually, but we don't have to start there. We can be children when we first come to Christ. And sometimes all you can do is just tell people the goodness of who he is. Well, how do you trust the scriptures? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, weren't they just written by men, some thousand, and it's all fake. I don't know. I, Jesus changed my life. Yeah, yeah, but can you really, is it really Moses, the one who wrote the Pentateuch? Like, do you think the Red Sea really crawled? Like, did you think that the, they really split the thing? Do you think the sun actually stood still? I don't know. Jesus changed my life. <laughs> But don't you think everything gets skewed in all the different translations over the thousands of years? I don't know. Jesus changed my life. <laughs> I don't know, dude. And I think at some point you're gonna know, dude. I think you're gonna get there. But you don't have to at first. What God's inviting you into is just a relationship with him. And like every relationship, it starts, starts where he's the bigger one, you're the smaller one. And you grow and you mature. You become intellectually, emotionally, and physically stronger and bigger. You, you, to use the words of the Apostle Paul, you stop drinking milk and start eating meat in the things of theology and doctrine and of Jesus. Is this tracking with you? Just imagine if you stayed as a child in your understanding of who God is. What if the only colors you ever knew was red, blue, and green like you learned in kindergarten? What'd I say? <laughs> red, yellow, and blue? Did Mary correct me? Of course she did. <laughs> Of course she did. No, I appreciate that, Mary, because I would listen to it and go, I'm an idiot. Yeah, what if you just, just learned the three primary colors and every, every painting of your life from that point forward was just used with those three colors? But what, when you mature and you begin to understand, if you begin to mix two colors together, you have different colors. <laughs> <Yeah>, brown. <laughs> Thank you, Mary. Green. <laughs> now look at me. Now look at the paintings you can paint. You don't have to start there. You start with what you have, which is your story, that Jesus has changed you. And we shouldn't stop at the basics. We want to grow. Self-editing here, forgive me. All right, here we go. The testimony that we can give others, it's possible that it will impact their lives and God will draw them into relationship, right? And sharing our testimony with others and our friends, it's really not the only reason that Jesus sent him back to his city. And I'm convinced of this now. I think evangelism is a huge thing, but I think there's a, a wholeness and a healing that, that, the, that Jesus wanted the man to experience. There is research that now shows how working through past hurts 
can bring wholeness. Individuals who have experienced trauma, whether it be physical, emotional, or psychological, often benefit from the therapeutic interventions aimed at processing um, and integrating these past experiences into our lives. So today, counselors help their patients similarly using regression therapy techniques to help us overcome our painful memories. And yet many of us here try to deal with our painful memories by pushing them away, saying things like this, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to know about it. I just wish I could forget it. And like a cork, we try to push underneath the water. It just keeps bobbing back up. Sometimes we have to go back to the past and deal with it. Psychologists say many of us will spend 50% of our emotional energy trying to repress painful memories. Pastor Stephen Crott states this, that we can't fully live because half of our power is being used to deal with something that occurred 20 years ago. Going back to revisit the past, the man with no name endured challenges for sure, but Jesus seems to understand that the only way to wholeness in both body and mind is to help him also overcome his past trauma. Jesus knows that the man didn't didn't choose demonic possession and he didn't intentionally hurt others, but they hurt him. And through these harsh words and isolation, the man with no name endured pain that he did not choose for himself. And many of us are like that man. We didn't choose the reason why people hurt us. We didn't choose the thing that they did to us when we were a child or, or whatever. The things that are spoken to us. We didn't choose those things, but they have affected our past. The poet Patterson Smith writes this, that all the ghosts of forgotten actions come floating by my, or before my sight and the things that I thought were dead things were alive with a terrible might. The vision of all my past life was an awful thing to face, alone, alone with my conscience in that strange and terrible place. It's so easy for us to read this story of Jesus healing the man with demons and focus on the supernatural aspect of this whole thing. We can focus on the spiritual realm where demons and angels exist. And we believe in demons here. We believe in angels here. We believe they are both created beings and we believe they are submiss- uh, sub- uh, submissive to God himself. The focus of the story, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this is what I say here, is not to be found in the fantastical elements, but rather Luke is telling a greater story. And the greater story is one of healing. It's one of wholeness. And it's brought by the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his divine care, he sends the man back home to heal. And that is what God wants to do with us. He wants us to overcome these things. I want to pray for us. I'm done. Just so you know, I'm done. If you're like, can we leave? Almost. <laughs> Almost. I, I want you to... Uh, when I was a young pastor, young preacher, um, sometimes to get people to respond, I'd stomp my feet, I'd raise my voice, I'd shout, I would repeat things again until people said, amen, yes, and amen. And I learned, I don't need to convince you of anything. Can you turn it down, Chris, please? I don't need to convince you of anything. I'm not trying to convince you of anything. I believe the Lord wants to do a healing is what I believe. And I say that only because out of all the ways this message could possibly have gone, the Lord led me to this way. And then coupled with what Samantha said, her and I haven't been talking about this, and coupled with a number of other things that you might, you might chalk up as coincidence, I believe God is saying something to us here today. 
that God wants to heal some people today. And all days I would shout, God wants to heal some people in this place. I don't, I don't have to convince you. So, all right. So I'm going to pray. That door's going to open. If you're visiting with us, we want to give you a gift, send you on your way. Thank you for stopping by. The people who got baptized, if you're part of their family, they are so glad that you came. God bless you for coming and being part of their day. Woo! Let's go. And when the door opens, you are free to leave. Go. Go. But if you're one of the ones that the Lord wants to heal today, I just ask that you'd stay. Let, let everyone just make a ruckus and head out the door. But you are going to stay because God's going to heal you today. And you'll come up front. We're going to have a couple people up here that'll pray. Maybe Bart, maybe Stephanie will join us. Maybe, oh my gosh. Isn't he, isn't he good? He's good. He's good. And there are people who have, who walk on a testimony of what God has done and it's, it's never left them. And they're gonna pray for some of you up here and we're gonna see a healing take place. God wants to take that knot from your past and untie it and let, let blood flow again and let, let the nerves work again. And he wants to salve that area and let it heal. All of that will take place after I pray. And you're welcome to stay. You're welcome to leave too. It doesn't, I don't care. <laughs> but if you, want to, if you want to stay for healing, we'll pray for you. So let's pray together. Heavenly Fathers, we reflect now on this powerful story from Luke's gospel. We are reminded of the transformative work of your son, Jesus. We thank you for the healing and the deliverance displayed and the life of this man, that you cast out the demons and sent him on a restorative journey to bring him into wholeness, Lord. Lord, we recognize that just as you brought healing to the demon-possessed man, you desire to bring healing into our lives as well. And so we come, oh God, that we come before you acknowledging our brokenness and the areas of our past that you need to touch. Lord, would you grant us the courage to confront and overcome the pains and the traumas that linger in our hearts. God, we pray for strength to follow the example of this healed man, to share our testimonies of your goodness and of your grace. So God, would you empower us to be vessels of your love, helping us to declare how much you've done for us. And may our stories inspire others and encourage ourselves of your healing presence, Lord. Lord Jesus, we lift up all of the people here that are currently facing battles, unseen forces, diabolical attacks, whether it be physical, emotional, spiritual. God, I ask that you would shine your light into the darkness. You would expose the brokenness that needs to be restored and healed, just like you did for the man that lived among the tombs. Help us to experience the freedom and the peace that only you can provide, oh God. So God, as we go forward from this moment of reflection, may your spirit 
Your Holy Spirit guide us, change us, and reflect that transformative power that you've placed in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Godspeed. Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to support you and have you be a part of our community. So please check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. There you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, and even contribute to the growth of the church through online giving. Or you can come see us in person on Sunday mornings in downtown Decatur. We can't wait to see you.